Well, good evening and welcome to this uh, lecture. I am chairing this session tonight, and I am Marie-Pierre Lloyd, the Seychelles High Commissioner to the UK. I arrived in November 2012. I am a pleased to be on the advisory team of this Above the Parapet project. I was, I can't say coerced, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am also pleased and excited that I am also participating, so I've done interviews for the project. You will hear more about the project in a minute, just to say that this project, which is LSE research project, seeks to explore the stories of the journeys of high-profile women who hold or have held public office. The sectors have been across uh, politics, academia, diplomacy, and civil society. So it's really hearing how we got there, what were the dynamics, what were the people who helped us or didn't help us. Uh, <laughs> but along the way, what were the obstacles, the challenges, and how did we manage to overcome them? So far, there's been, what, 80 interviews carried out with 80 women from all over the world. And uh, so therefore, as a result, there's a wealth of personal experiences, which I think would add the breadth and depth to what is a traditional way of measuring women's participation in public life. I won't say any more. I would like to just now introduce our guest for tonight, who is Professor Ruth Simmons. She is a senior uh, visiting fellow of the project, and uh, Professor Simmons was sworn in as the 18th president of Brown University in 2009, and she held that position until 2012. Yeah. 2001. 2001 to 2012. Sorry, just in nine. <laughs> Professor Simmons <laughs> was also elected as Brown University's first female president, and she is the first black president of an Ivy League. We will hear more about her and from her when she delivers her lecture to us. On my left, I'm sure you know Dr. Sen who is the Deputy Director of the Institute of Public Administration and leads the project. Her work has focused on violence against women, culture and human rights, trafficking, sexuality, uh, social development issues, and racial equality. She sits on many civil society boards, and uh, she also has served as Head of Human Rights for the Commonwealth Secretariat, and as director for the Asia-Pacific Program at Amnesty International. I will now call on Dr. Sen to give us a bit more about the project. But again, I think you know the, the drill or the template for these sort of lectures is that we will hear from Dr. Sen, a background, then we will invite our guest speaker, Professor Simmons, and then the floor is open, questions and answers. So, Dr. Sen? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, High Commissioner, and welcome to you all tonight. We're really delighted you're here. I'm going to take a quick couple of minutes to tell you about the project very briefly, um, and then there's a couple of words I'd like to say about Professor Simmons before we um, hear from her. First of all, just to introduce the project, um, it began 
last year uh, in response to really my thinking about various women I've spoken to over many, many years in terms of how they'd found support or what difficulties they'd had in their careers <clears throat> and moving forward. And it occurs to me, it's very clear that we have lots of statistics on how poor the profile is of women in senior public life. But what we didn't know is what lies behind those statistics, what's behind the data, and understanding what women have to deal with to get there, uh, where they find support or don't, as the High Commissioner says, um, and what lessons they think they've learned that they'd like to share with the women who want to follow them and the men who want to be part of creating a more balanced public life. So we were very fortunate and able to get uh, funding for this work. We have funding from the annual fund at the LSE, and from the Alison Weatherfield Foundation. That's enabled us to not only do the 40 interviews we'd hoped to do uh, in our period of research, but also because of the interest that so many women had in telling their stories and um, the uh, networking that put us in touch with more women. We've actually now completed, as you say, High Commissioner, 80 interviews with women who've reached senior positions in the academy, in diplomacy in politics and in civil society. So we have an incredibly rich set of data and testimonies on which we are now drawing to conduct analysis. Of course, it's pushed us back a little bit because we've got double the number of interviews that we plan to do. Um, but we will be pulling this all together over the next few months uh, with a view to the project coming to a close in the next, or what, at the end of August. Um, just to tell you about who we've interviewed, we have spoken to 26 women in politics, including heads of government and heads of state from Ireland, Malawi, Kyrgyzstan, Latvia and Finland. Uh, we've interviewed 21 diplomats, including the good High Commissioner here, and uh, 16 academics, including our pro-director, Julia, Professor Julia Black, who's with us tonight and has been very supportive of the project and 17 civil society leaders, including Mara Ailarassi, who is also on our advisory group and who heads up um, IMCAN, an organization working with black and minority women on violence. Uh, we have also made a particular effort to draw in and talk to women from across the world. What literature does exist around women in leadership tends to be focused on North America and Western Europe. So our spread has deliberately been cast more widely than that. And we have, um, let me get these numbers right for you. We have interviewed nine women from Africa, 13 from Asia, four from the Pacific. Outside uh, the UK and Europe, we've interviewed 16 women, 20 from the UK, um, 10 from the Americas, including, excluding the US, and eight from the US itself. In addition, we've been able to invite a small number of women to spend time, serious time with us here, mm -hmm. to reflect and to have a prolonged conversation over several days. And those fellows have been um, Joyce Banda, first president, woman president of Malawi. Uh, we've then had president, former president Rosa Ottenbaiva of Kyrgyzstan, Professor Sylvia Tamale from Makerere University in Uganda, uh, Julia Gillard, former prime minister of Australia, who some of you, I think, were able to come in here last week. And now our final visiting fellow is Professor Ruth Simmons. And I've had the incredible privilege of spending four days with her, talking in some detail about her experiences and her journey from the cotton fields of uh, Texas 
through to heading up an Ivy League university, Brown University. Um, I say uh, I have learnt quite a bit about her journey, but I, I am absolutely certain there's much we've yet to cover because it's so very rich. But as news breaks in the UK of us appointing our first black woman to head a university, that's Valerie Amos, who will be joining SOAS in September. It's a long overdue move in this country. I think we're really privileged to have uh, America's first black woman head of an Ivy League university with us now. The days I've spent with Professor Simmons have been incredibly fruitful, of course, in terms of looking at her journey. But more than that, um, I'd like to add a few words of appreciation of her generosity, incredible generosity of spirit, her absolute commitment to justice for all, not just for herself and from her experience. And I think and I hope that when you speak, Professor Simmons, we will capture that again. I think you've been an absolutely inspiring person to work with over the last few days, and I'm very grateful to you for ending our visiting fellows element of this phase, of this project, in such incredible energy and passion and commitment and inspiration to us all. I really look forward to hearing from you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's, it's a bit daunting to be introduced as someone of high energy uh, <laughs> on the warmest day, is it not, uh, in, uh, in London uh, for some time. Um, but uh, I have to say that I'm quite delighted to, to be here. Madam High Commissioner, Professor Sen, uh, let me say members also of the Institute for Public Affairs and the Above the Parapet Project. Um, I want to greet you all on behalf of my university, Brown University in Rhode Island, and the programs that I've been associated with, both at Smith College and Brown University, that promote women's leadership. Over the course of my 40-year career, I've observed the many ways in which such programs enlighten the public and create opportunities that otherwise would not be open to women. How much time do I have, by the way? About 40 minutes. Okay. We can be flexible. <laughs> Believe me, you don't want to go there. <laughs> So I've been truly impressed with the ways that these programs actually have contributed greatly to building up the uh, resources available to women and making it possible for women to move into leadership positions. And that is no, no small thing. Meaningful social change in the arena of equality can be slow and painful and difficult. It is not enough to open doors. The hurdles that lie beyond the threshold must also be cleared. And my, those hurdles can be interesting. Uh, they can be quite high. Um, they can be enduring. I've been a beneficiary of efforts to clear the pathway to equality, and I acknowledge that without them, I could neither have gotten an education in the first place 
nor made my way to a leadership role in the American Academy. So thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for taking on such an important project in the interest of women's leadership. Now, I should say that in the last uh, few days, it's been very intense and quite emotional for me to have to reflect on the past years of my life when I've been in a leadership position in higher education. Uh, I stepped down uh, in, um, uh, a few years ago from my position as president of Brown, and one of the things that has been quite difficult to do is to sort out how to talk about my time as president. Because after all, um, there is still a university there, concerned about the reputation of the university, concerned about how uh, I represent the university. And so there are many, also many confidential things that I know about the skeletons um, and various things uh, where they're hidden uh, in the university. And so uh, it has been, again, difficult to think about how to sort this out. But uh, much of what I'm going to talk about today is really about truth-telling. And I recognize that it's impossible for me to talk about the necessity of institutions and countries to speak the truth about their history and their circumstances when I'm not prepared to do it myself. And so who knows what will come out tonight. Um, uh, I, I, I hope it will be acceptable to all of my colleagues at Brown uh, who uh, treated me so well uh, when I was their president. But my remarks tonight will focus on a dimension of my leadership at Brown that I think is somewhat emblematic of what I and many women and minorities confront as they rise to and carry out their leadership roles. That is, we must not only compete with other high achievers without similar histories of discrimination, but we're expected somehow to rise above that history, to perform as if that history did not exist. Mm-hmm. Now that's something. You know, I, early in my life, when I was a high school student, I was uh, very interested in theater, the debate in theater. Um, And so I admit that in our professional lives, we're often called on to do some amount of performance, some amount of acting, but that's a very tall order, to pretend that all of the things that one has endured on the way to leadership, including discrimination, somehow didn't didn't exist, uh, to forget it and then to, as people like to say, move on. My own efforts as a leader sought at the personal level to overcome the long-term effects of racial discrimination in the United States, while at the very same time nurturing a belief that my experience and understanding of the effects of racism is a potent tool for fighting for human rights. I've tried to use that understanding to confront racism rather than to forget it, Uh, And in in the meantime, also, to confront sexism, homophobia, and other ills that divide and ravage our communities. Now, I should say that if you follow at all what's happening in the United States today, 
you know that we are encountering some of the deepest, most divisive issues related to race. Um, And so while I won't be dealing specifically with those broader issues, I hope during the discussion period you'll feel free to ask me questions and to offer comments about those matters as well, because surely they are intertwined. Uh, My journey to leadership began in a small town in East Texas where my parents, as you heard, were sharecroppers. Like most rural blacks during the 50s and 60s, they had few choices in shaping their lives and the prospects for their children. I was the last of their 12 children, born into a brutally exploitative sharecropping system that required child labor. Um to boost income for both plantation owners and families. As a general rule, because of the demands of sewing and picking cotton, children on these plantations attended school less than 50% of the school year. But it was my good fortune that my family moved to Houston when I was only seven, and without the requirement to work in the cotton fields, I was able to attend school for the full day and the full year. I relished going to school, learning across the full curriculum, and when I returned home, having access to continued learning through the books that I was incredibly able to borrow. In these books, I found a way to imagine what a world, to imagine a world different from the oppressive one that I had been born into, one which taught me that I was ugly, inferior, and absolutely without prospects for the future. Many in the world experience the reality of having every possibility for achievement blocked because of race, religion, ethnicity, gender, class, and other factors. In the United States, under the Jim Crow system, blacks were prohibited from seeking certain types of employment from voicing opposition to discriminatory practices, from using many public facilities, and of course from associating with whites at all. The economic exploitation and racial segregation that was typical of this period placed severe limitations on the degree to which blacks could receive an equal education. In spite of the landmark court case dethroning the separate but equal doctrine Education in my community remained very much separate, very much unequal. Yet because of that very segregation of the races, a cadre of dedicated teachers able to find employment only in black schools provided outstanding teaching and mentoring in the schools I attended when my family relocated to the city. The irony of this is astounding. Uh, Their opportunities were blocked, and so they were consigned to teaching us. But what a blessing that was for us, because they were educated. They were the only educated people in this community that we encountered. I was especially privileged to have a handful of teachers who encouraged me to go to college. Now, I had no good understanding of what college would do for me, nor did my parents, both of whom had 
one could say they had an eighth grade education, but honestly, in terms of what we know today to be an eighth grade education, it was more like a second grade education. They could read, they could write, uh, but um, there is um, uh, they could they could add um, uh, and and do basic math, but that was pretty much all that their education allowed them to do. And certainly, from their perspective, given the world in which they had grown up, the idea of college was foreign indeed. So I couldn't have had a good understanding of what college would do for me. But my excitement about learning drove me to want to advance to the highest levels of education where I could continue to grow in understanding about the wider world. Understanding the wider world was of keen interest to me and served as a kind of antidote for the overt hostility and disparagement blacks faced on a daily basis. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to describe this. I mean, my students um, would often ask me about this experience of growing up in the 50s um, uh, and 60s uh, during um, rigid segregation. It's very hard to describe what that was like. Uh, but um, it was routine uh, for us to walk down the street and to uh, be uh, assailed um, for no good reason at all, uh, for simply walking down the street. Um, it was routine for us when we encountered whites to have to step off the sidewalk to permit whites to pass. It was routine that if we had an, a, a glance that looked uh, emboldened or spoke in a way that seemed to suggest arrogance, um, we could be summarily punished by anyone. Not, not the formal system um, of justice, but by any, by any white who felt affronted uh, by anything that we were doing. And so as a consequence, as you might imagine, my parents taught us how to behave uh, around whites. Uh, to do nothing, to be very constrained in our movements and our actions, um, to not reveal on our visage any sign of um, any sign of anger, uh, any sign of uh, discontent, uh, to say yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and to otherwise project the image of an entirely compliant uh, person. Um, that's the way they brought us up, and they were wise in doing that because all of us lived to adulthood. All of us were safe in our family environment and safe when we went to town. Um, it was only later after we moved to the city that we became more emboldened, in a sense, to stand up for our rights because there was more of an infrastructure in the city uh, to support um, uh, our safety. But um, our parents were very clear that we were at risk in the world. That's what it was like to grow up uh, at that time. Um, the accusation of innate inferiority governed our lives. 
and hung over every aspect of what we did. So school became a proving ground where I could constantly test my capacities to learn, to express myself well, to grow stronger as a human being. And ultimately, through the encouragement of teachers, I was able to earn a scholarship for college, to broaden my perspective by studying abroad, and finally to earn a PhD and enter academic life. But by the time I graduated from high school, which was in 1963, my teachers didn't feel, they thought it was a, it was a high risk for me to go to uh, an integrated university because universities in Texas were just integrating. And they thought, um, mostly because I was a bit rambunctious uh, and quite outspoken as a high school student, uh, they thought that this did not bode well for me in a white environment. And so they pushed me to attend a black college, which is what I did. I went off to New Orleans and attended an all-black college uh, in uh, Louisiana. By the time I began my career, I thought I was already at the height of my achievement, actually. <laughs> because after all, to advance from a segregated inner-city high school uh, to a PhD in Harvard was an achievement far beyond anything I or my teachers or my family could have imagined. So I started my career in a rather lackluster manner, I would say, uh, although I wouldn't have called it that at the time. You know, there's something about revisiting history that's very, uh, very good. I mean, you get to change um, the way that um, your interpretation of what you were doing at the time, but it was pretty lackluster. Uh, I was content to follow my husband as he moved from a law practice to a career in business. Along the way, I was content to find employment where I could while attending to the duties of parenting two young children. But my career took a different turn by necessity. My husband and I separated after 14 years of marriage, and I took a job at Princeton University, located in New Jersey. Within Princeton, I rose quickly to a high-level administrative position, in spite of my penchant for somewhat quixotic behavior that caused me to question everything, especially the university's policies and practices with regard to women and minorities. It was my good fortune that some of my work in questioning and addressing those practices led to significant changes in the hiring of women and minorities, changes that drew favorable attention to Princeton. One, uh, one of the very uh, exciting uh, endeavors that I was involved in was the recruitment of faculty. And in that era, Princeton didn't have black faculty for the most part. Um, and those that they did have were, uh, many of the, those that they did have, uh, were not competitive with the rest of the faculty. And so um, I had the pleasure of giving, being given responsibility for recruiting a lot of faculty. And um, that was hard work, um, actually. I, I don't want to represent that it was just a lovely, um, you know, garden party. It wasn't at all. It, the, the, the notion of convincing departments, department by department, that they should hire extremely qualified uh, African Americans, and uh, to a science department, that they, departments, they should hire extremely qualified women, uh, was, uh, was very challenging. Nevertheless, we managed to have some success with this. 
Um, the credit that I received personally for some of these advances led me to increasingly high levels of responsibility, and in 1995, I was approached about becoming president of the largest women's college in the United States. The fact that my activist approach had not deterred the search committee from seeing me as a positive force frankly surprised me. Um, in fact, as I, as I said um, earlier in the week, when I was first approached about the idea of becoming a president, I, I said no. Um, I said no, no not only because I thought there was some kind of mistake, that they didn't really know who I was, um, <laughs> but also because um, uh, I could not bring myself to believe that I could be the person that I am and be a college president. It just, it, it, it just didn't seem possible to me that that would work. And so when they first approached me, I said no. I would not stand for, uh, for the presidency of Smith. They kept at it a bit and uh, came back to me and eventually persuaded me that I should take on, uh, take on this role. But even after they did, um, I urged the board to consider carefully whether they were comfortable with my approach to leadership. What was this approach? I had been able to remain committed to the academy because it had tolerated and in some cases embraced my commitment to making these institutions more inclusive. This work was central to my identity as an academic. Many in my cohort had left the academic profession altogether, not only because they deemed it hostile to their presence, but also because they lost hope that change would occur during their lifetime. I remained in the academy because my path was illuminated by an unshakable belief that not only was change possible, but that I could be a useful instrument of that change. My work, while never solely dedicated to diversity efforts, was often motivated by the desire to see diversity thrive in my lifetime. After six satisfying years at Smith, I was approached about assuming the presidency of Brown University. I really don't want to give short shrift to, to Smith, particularly in the context of a program focusing on, on women. Um, but uh, it was very important to me when I was president of Smith to identify programs that um, brought women into areas um, where their success was somehow blocked. So um, I, I worked very hard to establish an engineering program. And I did that because I had been so frustrated by the small number of women in certain fields of science and engineering. And I had long since um, become aware that the accrediting agency for engineering no longer thought that the stiff group of, of courses that were required to go into engineering and that served as an enormous hurdle for women going into engineering were actually not necessary. <coughs> um, they had urged that engineering schools take a different approach to bringing students into engineering. So at that time, uh, students had to study uh, physics, chemistry, um, calculus, all in the first semester of their college, um, plus an engineering course. 
And as you might imagine, a lot of students washed out before they even got into the meat of the field. Um, so I wanted to set up a program as a, as to demonstrate that there was a, another way to teach engineering. And so I started uh, the engineering uh, program uh, at Smith. Um, so uh, Smith was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful opportunity for me to try some of the things that I thought important to change in the academy. When I was approached about going to Brown, um, I was very much uh, reluctant to leave Smith because it was such a wonderful environment. The students were bright. Um, we had um, laid out a series of things that we wanted to achieve. We were in the middle of those things. But um, being presented with the opportunity to break the color line in the Ivy League was ultimately something that I couldn't I couldn't say no to. I couldn't say no to it because it was not clear um, that if I turned down the opportunity um, to move into leadership role in the Ivy League, wasn't clear that there was another African American anytime soon who would have that opportunity. And so I was persuaded by some who thought symbolically that was such an important thing to do I was persuaded to um, go to Brown. Um, having been elected the first African-American president of an Ivy League university in the United States, I was certainly aware that many would be concerned about my ascension to that post. I was also aware that I would not have the freedom of some of my fellow presidents in the Ivy League to govern solely in the interest of their university's mission. Their performance would be judged on the basis of their effectiveness in planning, constructing budgets, raising funds, creating new programs, and representing the university. I, on the other hand, along with two other female Ivy League presidents, would be greeted inevitably by watchful stakeholders, alert to missteps that would be presumed to typify the behavior of someone of my background. I don't know if you've had this experience, but typically when people get angry about something that a minority group member does, they say, you see, <laughs> that's just what you people do. It's the you people. And how many of you have experienced the you people chart? I mean, it, it's, it's very, very typical that that happens. And so I was very alert to the possibility that I was getting ready to hear a lot of you people. Um, uh, I was so different from what uh, brown presidents were supposed to be. Uh, I was, I'd grown up poor. Uh, brown is a very privileged environment, very wealthy institution. I'd been educated in segregated schools. I'd not attended an Ivy League university um, as an undergraduate. I was a southerner. Um, <laughs> One of the first things that I heard when I was named president of Brown was the great concern about my election. Um, do you know why? Because they said I was a Southern Baptist. <laughs> and um, uh, they thought, uh, by the way, Brown was founded by Baptists <laughs> and is identified with the Baptist church, but 
Southern Baptists in the United States mean something very specific um, to them, and that was their concern. Little did they know, they had a lot more to worry about than the fact that I was a Southern Baptist. <laughs> so, um, and finally, I represented the legacy of the slaves that had built the historic building at the center of the campus. The first president of Brown, whose portrait was hanging in my office over the fireplace, was a slaveholder. Of course, I'm a descendant of slaves. Nobody ever suggested, by the way, when I began my term, what should be done about the portrait that I had to face every day that I came to work. Um, that's, an, that's interesting, I, I, and I have to come back to that. Um, some probably worried that I might do some damage to this treasured university, an institution almost 250 years old, that had survived many challenges to become ranked as one of the very best research universities in the country. But in an odd way, I understood their concern. Yet I had to balance the anxiety of doubters uh, against that of others in the country who would be more attentive to something different. And that is, uh, was I going to be an Uncle Tom? Uh, or an Uncle... Thomasina, or whatever. Uh, 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 so they would be worried about whether or not I would honor my history and continue to speak out for those marginalized by and excluded from elite universities. So this is the situation that marked my entrance into public life at Brown University. Uh, some might describe it as walking a tightrope, but I confess it didn't feel that way to me at the time. Having risen from faculty member to dean to vice provost over the course of many years, I had to make many adjustments in my perceptions and in my approach to addressing problems of discrimination. A fundamental element of that adjustment was the recognition that the only way for me to remain in the academy was not to change my fundamental principles. The civil rights movement and the experience of growing up in the Jim Crow South made it impossible to obliterate the importance to me of equal rights. I knew I could not be part of a system that upheld practices that prevented fair and equal access and treatment. I was less concerned about attitudes and actions that excluded or offended me personally. I focused instead on matters of long-term cultural, historical, or societal import. The focus away from my own situation allowed me to process, I think, in a healthy way, much of the personal discrimination that I received early in my career. Poor treatment by faculty when I was a graduate student at Harvard. Unequal pay when I became an academic. You probably have never experienced this, but I was actually told when, you know, in one of my early jobs that I, I simply couldn't get paid um, an equal amount, um, an, an amount equal to the men on the faculty, uh, uh, because they had children to support. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, there were social slights because of the strong views that I held and expressed, and, and, and so on. Whatever long-term exposure I had to America's obsession with race was managed through a conscious process of asserting and reasserting fundamental principles of human decency and equality. Not so much in relationship to me and my group, but fundamental human 
decency, and equality. Soon after I began my tenure at Brown, the robustness and effectiveness of my focus on these principles was tested. In 2002, Charles Ogletree, a law professor at Harvard, mentioned that Brown, Harvard, and Yale would be targets of a lawsuit to be filed by the Reparations Coordinating Committee. Another lawsuit filed against Fleet Boston, a bank, mentioned Brown as a wealthy institution with assets derived from slave trading. The discussion of reparations claims in this period was quite widespread. The notion that Brown, among others, should pay reparations for having benefited from the transatlantic slave trade prompted David Horowitz to publish a statement on reparations that created enormous tension on the Brown campus. And, of course, many alumni reading these news accounts and these editorials in the New York Times wanted to know whether it was in fact the case that Brown benefited directly from the slave trade. But when I sought to answer, I'm just starting as president of Brown. When I tried to, when I tried to find a way to answer their questions, I discovered there was no official history at Brown confirming or disputing this allegation. Indeed, if any link to slavery existed, it had been completely erased from the university's history. The only official reference to slavery was the fact that two slaves had participated in the construction of University Hall, the oldest building on campus. So I concluded that unearthing a full account of any such involvement would be difficult, but extremely important. So I invited a group of faculty and students to undertake a transparent and thorough research project on this question. And here is an excerpt from my charge to the committee. Quote, this is an effort designed to involve the campus community in a discovery of the meaning of our past, understanding our history and suggesting how the full truth of that history can be incorporated into our common traditions will not be easy. But then it doesn't have to be. Well, that turned out to be true. It wasn't easy. While I knew that as an African-American president, this action would be criticized and considered a predictable misstep on my part, I didn't understand the extent to which I would be vilified for merely commissioning this study. So I just want to read you one of the, an excerpt from one of the letters sent to the committee during this period of time. You disgust me as you discussed many other Americans. Slavery was wrong, but at that time, it was a legal enterprise. It ended, case closed. You cite slavery's effects as being the reason that black people are so far behind, but that just illustrates your ignorance. Black people here and now are behind because some can't keep their hands off drugs or guns or can't move forward, can't get off welfare, can't do the simple things to improve their life. They don't deserve money. They deserve a boot in the backside over and over until they can find their own way. This is my favorite part. <laughs> can your ignorant research and can Ruth Simmons too. Uh, that's very uh, typical of the kind of, uh, you didn't know that being a university president was so exciting, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we get all kinds of, all kinds of letters. But, um, but that's the way it went. So um, the process was undertaken and led by two professors, 
um, James Campbell and Tony Bogues. Um, the resulting report set the history right, as you might expect, and resulted in a number of actions. In fact, this is a copy of the report that was written um, from, that, from that work. The diverse members of the committee studying the history of slavery in Rhode Island and its connection to the founding of our university discovered that our founders were indeed involved in the slave trade. Not just involved, but 30 members of our uh, founding corporation were involved in the slave trade. Through a series of exhibitions, the committee laid open the logs of slave ships that demonstrated clearly the involvement of the Brown family in the trade. At the end of an extensive period of study, the committee presented us with recommendations for ways to acknowledge this history openly, honorably, and confidently. And further, they recommended the establishment of a research center that would focus on both historic and contemporary forms of human enslavement. Of course, you all know that extensive current evidence on human trafficking by organizations around the world, including the Polaris uh, Project, reveal that human trafficking is, more, trafficking is more widespread and its victims more numerous today than at the peak of the transatlantic slave trade. There's growing recognition that even as we expose current criminality in the trade and assist vis victims of this commerce, we owe to ourselves a full and true account of historic slavery in all its forms. While it was challenging to work through the concerns expressed about unearthing this history, this process became one that was replicated across many institutions. I guess things began to turn for us when our process started to be imitated um, around the world. It's, it's funny how institutions have a way of rewriting the narrative um, when uh, they benefit from, uh, thank you so much, when they, they begin to see the benefits of what has occurred. And so uh, when it became clear that Brown was being recognized for having done this work, then more and more people began to claim it. Um, I was invited by the United Nations to speak to their assembly about how Brown confronted this history as member nations also undertook to memorialize this tragic history. Representative after representative came forth to express their nation's regret for this wrong. Now, on that occasion, I spoke not so much of our recognition of this painful history, but of our opportunity for a true account of our origins as a university. And what better way um, to lead into a celebration of our university's 250th anniversary. But there's more to the business of setting the record straight than merely exposing the truth of what actually transpired. Historic wrongs inevitably have a long reach. The trauma of victims and their descendants clings to institutions to families, to communities, and nations for centuries. An accurate account of the history, along with acknowledgement of the wrong done, helps victims to heal, for there is no more traumatic aftermath of exploitation and crimes against humanity than the denial that they occurred and the minimizing of the weight of the injustice. Ferguson, Missouri, and more recent violent incidents in its wake demonstrates how historic wrongs attach themselves to current events, making community divisions far more resistant to solution. Many in the country could not understand why Ferguson and later Baltimore and now Charleston exist. In this, we have a dual dilemma. 
the very real problem of how the, those traumatized by unfair treatment can rise above that history to bring about a change in society, and how, on the other hand, those who have not experienced that oppression can rise above the comfort and privilege of not living under such oppression to understand the destructive effects of hatred, exploitation, mistreatment, and inequality. The study of massive human rights violations places the new Center for Slavery and Justice, which was created as a recommendation of this report, at the very center of the university's present-day obligations to society. In the highest and best sense, universities protect society from itself. The future of the human species is too important for individuals and communities to be left to muddle through this stage of evolution, unenlightened about the causes and consequences of past and current actions. It is to our education, I think, that we must look to provide a bulwark against harmfully misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and exploiting others. Throughout my career, I relied on a belief in the importance of universities in this arena, the formation and furtherance of civil society by conducting research that is critical to understanding who we are as human beings. The independence and integrity of that research is critical to its having a positive impact on society. As a new president calling for a research project on our university's involvement with slavery, I relied on standards of transparency, integrity, and rigor to answer people's questions about the validity of the study. These standards also gave the community insight in the values and motivation of a new president that they hardly knew at the time. My conviction that these standards were essential to the health and success of our investigation arose out of my many years of working toward a sensible approach to inclusion. In areas as varied as faculty affairs, student life, and research, I had worked to persuade universities of the candor, openness, and mutual respect needed to engender trust across communities of difference. I became identified as someone able to confront divisive questions, bring transparency to the process of seeking answers, and achieve positive resolutions that were ratified by the community. Soon this ability became an important element of my identity as a university administrator, as more and more frequently universities and organizations sought me out to lead this process in their institutions. So my identity as a leader started taking shape because I was doing that work. This experience with problem solving in the midst of turmoil was immensely beneficial when I began to deal with the slavery issue. My creation of the Committee on Slavery was initially widely misunderstood, and the work of the committee was much criticized. But through months of debate and research, including dealing with differences among committee members, the committee emerged with a sensible proposal to address what they defined as an historic wrong. In spite of my experience dealing with such problems, the process of unearthing the university's ties to slavery was an unexpected challenge of my leadership. Now, let me just say that at the time I accepted the presidency of Brown, I knew none of this history. I've often asked myself whether, had I known the history, I would have accepted the presidency. I think I would not have, actually, accepted the presidency because I would have understood that to be, as an African-American, in the midst of such a difficult issue um, would um, 
be exceedingly painful to me and difficult for the university. Yet, um, I think that taking this on, on became a defining aspect of my professional and academic profile. As I began my presidency, I hoped for a presidency where my race and gender would not be the issue. You know this fantasy, right? <laughs> okay. So the fantasy is that we, you know, we grow up with is somewhere, you know, there's a reality where you can just be who you are and not worry about stereotypes and not worry about the history um, uh, of uh, race uh, and gender and all the other isms. Um, and you think there's some neutral point. And as minorities, we always believe that whites occupy that space. And they're incredibly privileged because they don't have to worry about any. They can roll out of bed in the morning, um, for example, and not worry about any of the things that we spend hours of the day worrying about. That's a myth, of course. But that's the way we tend to think of it, that, that we are in a situation as women, um, in a situation as uh, minorities, where we have this incredible burden uh, of having to worry about things that others don't. So in my fantasy, um, I thought, what would it be like to be an Ivy League president without any of this? I don't know. I don't know what it would be like. Um, but I think I was the best one. So it could be that, in fact, this just made me better altogether. All uh, but we have that fantasy that um, we, if only we didn't have to operate with these circumstances, we could do marvelous things. Um, of course, in America, that could never be the case. An erasure of my unique circumstances... Uh, and I'm finishing up. Um, that is to say, the racism that shaped my early life, the denial of my human worth, the constraints of poverty, all these were factors that enabled me to see the presidency from a very particular perspective. What would have been the point of being just another Ivy League president? The ubiquitous stereotyping that besets us as human beings is a factor that women, minorities, and many others will endure for a long time to come. Fighting those often oppressive stereotypes should never prevent us from confronting the right problems and addressing the right issues. In the end, I must say I'm relieved that I did not have the ability to avoid the issue of slavery at Brown. For doing so, improved my leadership, strengthened my confidence in who I am, bound me to my community, and made a difference for the university and, I hope, for the country. Thank you. Wow, <laughs> what a lady, what a story, what a journey. I think this is for me the beauty of the project because when uh, I was approached saying we know there are few women in high positions but we know only less, even less about their story, their journey and I think this is an example here we've heard today. I attended another lecture, and I know like there are similarities with my story, but there are also a lot of differences. And as I said, this is the beauty of the project. You will end up with a wealth of personal experiences. 
Now the floor is open for questions, because I know you're raring to go. <laughs> so I will take two or three questions at a time, and then so that everybody gets a chance. So we wait for the micro. We've got one here. I would stand up, but I think I might trip. This is so tight. <laughs> Uh, my name is Connie Jackson, and I'm an alum of LSE, and I'm also an alum of Fisk University. Ah. Um, I, I, it was interesting to hear you talk about um, your start at a historically black college and then moving through to Harvard, where I also went. I'm an alum. And there's a lot of questioning right now about uh, single-gender education, the value of HBCUs, the value of people going to somewhere where they can form themselves as in a majority without where they can really focus on themselves. And just wondering, since you've made the full arc through the academy, of what you think about the, um, the value of those experiences such as women's education, minority education. Thank you. Oh, you go. Yeah. yeah. Good evening. Um, I just I just wanted to ask you, what what do you think of the chances of a black British Prime Minister? <laughs> so you, can you say your name? My name is Abel. <laughs> You're a student here. Not not an LSE no. Okay. No. But I'm a student. Yeah. So please, yes, and before you start asking the question, your name and where you're from or who you represent. Thank you. Uh, we've got the... Hi, my name is Erin. Um, I'm actually from St. Louis, Missouri, and I went to Loyola University in New Orleans for my undergraduate work, and I'm a social policy and development student here at LSE. Um, thank you for your talk. It was amazing and very educational. Um, uh, my question is... Well, you began your talk with acknowledging the position that a lot of universities are in in terms of um, maintaining their media presence or maintaining their neutrality on a lot of issues and sort of their uh, uh, how people perceive them. Sorry, I'm not coming up with the right word in my head mm -hmm. right now. Um, but you also spoke about the importance of universities in a saving us from ourselves and um, helping tackle really important issues. And with so many significant current events that are happening in the United States that are so fiery and passionate, what do you think it sh the un a university's role should be in terms of, you know, maintaining this uh, either, yeah, maintaining this like ivory tower stance or um, sort of breaking that down and taking a stance on some issues, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've got three now. Um, is it Connie? Was it? With regard to single sex uh, and uh, minority institutions, I have such a deep respect for education that I cannot believe that um, trying to limit the options available to learners was in our interest. And if, for whatever reason, there are women who feel that they will learn better in an all-women's environment, I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I hope the Supreme Court 
never gets to the point where they outlaw, outlaw these different kinds of environments. Um, uh, similarly, with minority institutions, I, I, I honestly, um, for a long time, I regretted the fact that my teachers pushed me in the direction of a black college. Because, number one, I didn't fit in. Uh, I talked funny. Uh, I was not very social. I was, I was a total misfit. And I began to think that that was the wrong decision for me. But it turned out to be exactly the right decision for me because I was in an environment in which I could grow and, frankly, flourish. And I was uh, alluding, for example, to, an, uh, to uh, uh, something, you know, it's one of those quixotic things uh, that I did in my very first year of college. Um, uh, Dillard had a Methodist association, and so chapel was required. Um, it's not that unusual in the United States for people at that, in that era to insist on chapel. I mean, if you go to Notre Dame, you have to go to Mass um, and so forth. So, but I thought this was profoundly unfair. Um, and so I refused to go to chapel. Um, that institution was not ready for somebody like me. Um, they thought... <laughs> Uh, that, um, that this was a horrible thing to do. In my mind, coming from where I came from, it was unjust to force Jews and um, uh, Catholics, for example, to go to this chapel service. And so I decided that I wouldn't go. I would protest for all of them. The problem was, there wasn't a single Jew or Catholic at this <laughs> But I was able to do things like that and test the space that I was going to occupy in my life. And the fact that um, this was a very conservative environment was just right for me because it allowed me to differentiate myself. Um, and so that, that, was, that was just fine as an environment uh, for me. So I, so I support women's uh, colleges and, um, and uh, minority institutions. And, um, you know, I, I think that they have a lot to offer. But I think that um, the students who go there must be very demanding um, of, um, of the quality of those institutions. Uh, and they must fight um, for justice in the way they would fight for justice in a white institution. So for me, I'd never been to a white um, institution. I had never been around white people at all. And still I was demonstrating for them. You know? So that's the, that's the thing. And so you have, to, you have to have make the values that are important to you come alive no matter where you are. It doesn't matter who's sitting in the seats. Um, on the question of um, a black British prime minister, um, why not? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I, this is not something that I'm, uh, um, uh, I'm really able to respond to, but, but why not? Why not? 
<laughs> no, no, you keep saying okay. I'm asking, why, why could there not be a black oh, prime minister? Oh, personally, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I'm 31 years old. Yeah. The, the way I see things in the realms of power in the UK, mm-hmm. it's not really much of black influence. Yeah, this is, that's what we said in the United States. Mm. <laughs> but there's a remarkable thing about human behavior. Now that I've lived so long, I mean, I can see this very clearly. You have no more ability to predict what's going to happen in your lifetime than the man in the moon. And the reason you have no ability to predict that is because you cannot imagine the circumstances that, um, that come into play when human beings are reacting to the li- in the lives, the particular lives that they live. And so, um, so, you know, I was the first to say there would never be a, a black president in the United States, uh, nor a black president in the Ivy League. Um, that was very clear to me. So be careful what's clear to you. Um, because, you know, it might not. Uh, it might not be. As for the media, you know, I, I always um, maintain that whether universities want to do it or not, they teach values in everything that they do they teach values so if they choose to have a program on women in leadership they're saying something to society about the importance of women's leadership if they choose to say something about the terrible situation in our country with racial divisions um, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, the one thing uh, university leaders can't do is to just comment on everything that comes along. So, so the template that I used, because naturally students would come to me every day and said, Ruth, you must make a public pronouncement on this. Um, whatever was of interest to them, uh, you know, that was what I was supposed to pronounce on. Uh, but I very rarely did that. Um, but I did it when I thought it mattered, especially on human rights issues. And so when the issue of, uh, the issue of allowing um, Hispan- Mexican students in the United States to go to college came up, I thought, I have to speak on that. When the issue of um, uh, equality for gays, lesbian, transgender um, people came up, it, you have to say something about that. Uh, so there are there are there are issues that are of such overriding importance that universities need to say something about them. But I certainly don't recommend that universities step into the fray on every issue that comes up. I, I think that's not wise, frankly. Thank you. Next round. We've got one. Yes, you went the back. Hi, my name is Alicia Maraj, and I'm studying at LSE. I have um, three mini questions. I'm sorry. Um, the first is, I'd like you Use to commas because you're only allowed one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll do that. Um, I'd I'd like you to tell me about your view on the Supreme Court's ruling on um, Fisher versus Texas University of Texas, particularly since they're going to be reviewing that decision. Um, and particularly just explaining what your views on affirmative action, where does it stop, when, when is it, if, if there's a place for it, and when does it stop. Um, the second question is that you spoke about what your parents had taught you 
about dealing with whites. Um, and so I wanted to ask, what have you taught your children about um, the same, particularly with those in, in authority? And finally, um, sorry, um, you, you are at what we refer to as, um, you know, the intersectionality of race and gender and class. And I just wanted to know what constraints that has, if you could specifically speak about the constraints as well as opportunities that that has presented you being at that um, position. Um, sorry. And how can we address these issues? That's it. That's it. Thanks. We've just spent four days discussing that, Ali. You're not going to get it in one go tonight. Right, we have the gentleman in the middle has had his hand and... Good evening, uh, my name's Luke Belleni. I'm uh, a Brown alum, I arrived the year after you and I'm uh, okay. the head of the Brown Club here in the UK. Well, there you are. Um, <laughs> I thought it was fascinating that you said you, you wouldn't perhaps have taken on the presidency had you known the history of, of Brown. And my immediate thought to that was, well, if you hadn't have created the Slavery and Justice Project, who would have done? I mean, certainly I don't think your immediate predecessor would have done. Um, I feel that it's very much uh, something that only one person could have taken on, and, and that person was obviously you. So um, I wonder if you could elaborate slightly more on, on that decision and... Um, you're, you're thinking behind it. Thank you. Uh, okay. We've got lady, yeah. Hi, my name is Suzanne Swanson Goss, and I'm Smith class of 96. Yes. And I was there for your inauguration, so oh, God am a Sigi tour. If you know what that means. Um, so it's a quick question. is more personal. Um, you spoke about the, your separation after 14 years as sort of catalyzing organic change for you. Um, and I'm wondering, when you spoke about being an actress and spoke about circumstances and honesty in that way, if you found that, in fact, when you look back, you became more yourself that it wasn't actually acting, or was that an enablement more toward a truth that wasn't for you yourself that you were free to achieve, even though it was organic and not inorganic in your career path? Um, or was that something that just happened, and did you become that person by circumstances? Mm -hmm. Thank you. We've had wow. Uh, <laughs> we've had three, no? One, two, three. We take three yeah, at a time. We, 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 and had, we've had, we have six now. Yeah, we have six. <laughs> <laughs> our our Supreme Court. Um, well, you know we have a uh, very divided Supreme Court, and we're all quite anxious about what will happen if President Obama does not have an opportunity to appoint um, a Supreme Court justice. Um, and if you read the decisions related to gay marriage, you have a sense of the tenor of the debate going on in, in the Supreme Court. But let me come back to the question of affirmative action. You know, affirmative action, 
you know, there's one condition in affirmative action that people tend to forget, and one requirement that people tend to forget. Um, it was required, affirmative action was required from the outset to be narrowly constrained. Something everybody forgets. So in order to use affirmative action, you have to have proof that you need affirmative action to solve a very specific problem, right? And if you have to use it to solve a specific problem, you have to tailor it very narrowly to solve that problem. It cannot be a blanket um, affirmative action. It has to be it has to be narrow. And you know, I could give you some examples of that, but 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 that's that's the important thing. I believe the court will continue to move in that direction. And what it's doing is it's not rewriting affirmative action. It is interpreting affirmative action based on the way that it was written in the first place. So that's always been a concern. But one good thing I would say about the courts is that they have finally said that universities may, may have a responsibility to um, have a diverse campus. And to the extent that universities don't err in abusing how to do that, um, then um, they will be able to continue to use not affirmative action, but a guideline of diversity in admitting students uh, to university. Now, unfortunately, many universities uh, we got into this trouble in the first place because universities were doing really terrible things with affirmative action. Really terrible things with affirmative action, okay? And so um, universities are getting smarter about what, where the latitude is, um, and hopefully um, they will not um, go to the point of causing the Supreme Court um, or the government, the U.S. government, or the legislature to have some massive change um, in whether or not affirmative action is actually allowable. But re remember that narrow constraint, um, na narrow, well, narrow tailoring of affirmative action. What have I taught my children? <laughs> um, well, uh, I'll give you this example, um, and, and you'll understand um, what has seeped down. I have, I have one grandchild, a seven-year-old girl. And so we're sitting at home one day, and my son um, interrupts her. She's talking. She talks a lot, actually. <laughs> interrupts her. And she says, please don't talk over me. That's a seven. That's a seven-year-old. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say I learned in my era how damaging it was to silence, to silence us. It was safe though, and I can't complain about what my parents did in saving our lives. Honestly, okay. And I can tell you my experiences in the United States today with students who speak forcefully to the police and pay the price for it. So it is not at all as if the time has passed when um, 
blacks and and others have the ability to speak freely. That's not that's a myth. It's not possible. It is not true. Um, blacks are still summarily punished for speaking to power. And so, um, so uh, I, I certainly tell my son, if you are stopped by the police, I told him this when he was a, um, a, a child beginning to think about um, moving about on his own, and certainly when he began driving, if you're ever stopped by the police, comply, comply, comply. Okay? A lot of my students who've gotten into trouble with this um, uh, challenge the police. The police uh, say, um, you need to do X, and then they challenge the police. Why? I have my rights. You see this on television. I know my rights. Try saying I know my rights to many police in the United States, mm -hmm. and you can imagine what happens to you. So, so within, within certain um, parameters... Um, young people still today have to be taught to, um, to speak, um, to defend um, uh, their right to speak, but not to challenge in dangerous situations because they can be shot and killed, frankly. But not white children. Um, I've had white students who were mistreated by police, not to the same extent, not for walk, walking and being black, uh, which is what people in the United States say. I mean, you can walk down the street um, and um, a policeman observes you and decides that you're acting strange. Mm. And then I have, a, I have a friend named Cornell West who is, is kind of a ridiculous-looking person. He, he has big hair. <laughs> Um, and he, he wears black suits and vests and so forth. And um, he, he, um, uh, he used to get stopped by the police every time he drove down the street. Every time. Um, he's kind of a walking advertisement for, you know, stop me. Uh, and, and I think, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a grown man, um, a professor at Princeton. I went... It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter who you are or what you do, okay? If you're president of the United States, you're still called a boy. Um, if, you, uh, if you hold high office, again, it doesn't matter. Um, so um, there is a way in which all of us as human beings have to take on this issue of how human beings are treated. It is not until the general public is seized of the importance of this, that it's ever going to change. And so, uh, so I always urge my students to get involved and to really be concerned about what happens to everybody, not just their group, not just, not just blacks, not just um, um, young people or, uh, and so forth, everybody. Because there is a way in which we can have a humane a more humane society. Uh, we just have to work on it, and we have most of all, most of all we have to care about it. Um, as for who would have done this at Brown, if not me, I, again, um, you know, we all have fantasies, uh, and and that was part of my fantasy is that maybe there's a world in which I could just be Ruth Simmons. Um, 
you know, a brilliant um, uh, person with enormous capacity, um, who has really a wonderful shoe collection, um, uh, you know, all the characteristics that I have, and just be that and, and, and only that, so that I wouldn't be defined by the fact that I grew up poor. Um, I wouldn't be defined by the fact that, I, um, uh, that I'm black. Um, there will, this will not happen for me. I know that. I mean, I know that's a fantasy. Um, at the same time, um, I think it is important for women and minorities to push back because if we ever settle for the fact that we're treated differently in leadership roles, that is a bad thing too. So it's therapeutic for me and good for you to hear that, not, that Rick Levin at Yale didn't have to put up with the things that I put up with. You need to know that. So I have to disclose that uh, because it's important for Brown alumni and Brown students to know that the president they had was functioning with a range of issues that other presidents never had to deal with. Having said that, as I, as I said in my talk, I'm very relieved that I had to deal with it because I don't know if you read this study. If you, if you haven't, I can leave this copy for you. But it's, it, I was reading it again today. It is so fantastic. And as I, uh, I gave you um, a sense of the attention that it's gotten, but honestly, um, it's gotten more attention than anything else um, that I ever was associated with Brown. I just came from Oxford um, receiving an honorary degree from Oxford University in a very medieval ceremony. <laughs> um, very. Very. I'm sure that the work that Brown did on slavery and justice was the cause of that. So, so it, was, it, it, was, um, it was a wonderful project. I'm very proud of the work that we did. Um, and uh, and I, I think probably if there had been as much pressure from alumni about the history of slavery, any president in that seat would have had to take it on. I don't know if they would have done it the same way, um, but I know they would have had to take it on because there was tremendous pressure to find out, because most alumni didn't believe that this, there was a connection to slavery. So, so erased was the any mention of slavery, and by the way, you know one of the most compelling things about this. W would you like me to leave this with you? I'm happy to do that. I've skimmed it. Oh no, no, you missed. Not, no, 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 no skimming. No skimming. <laughs> you have to read the whole thing, um, and I think it's available online. But uh, here, here's the thing. At Brown, nobody's ever heard of a relationship to slavery, right? But the committee discovered that in the meeting room where they were meeting, there was a clock in the corner. And they didn't pay much heed to it. It's in the, it was in the office of the dean of the college. They didn't pay much heed to it. But one day, they examined the clock. It turns out that that clock had belonged to a man named Isaac Hopkins, who was a slave, uh, the captain of slave ships. Everything, as the committee said, hidden in plain sight. <laughs> Slavery connections all around us. And yet, 
it had been it had been erased. So so that was a very important thing to do, and I'm glad that we that we did it um, in in the final analysis. Um, uh, I the the question about Smith was remind me. Um, was did the the separation prompt me to do what I have done? Did it free me, mm-hmm. uh, in a He's sense? Talking about being an actress at the beginning. Yes. And you know, and, and, and things that changed. And I'm wondering if you became you weren't acting, but you became more yourself. And I, I alluded to the fact that you can talk about separation yeah. almost as organic growth, not yeah. organic, but. That maybe did it did it allow you to explore who you truly are instead of actually acting into a different role. Well, I mean, I didn't mean to say that I was I was acting in in that role. I meant I, I meant to um, I what I meant to suggest. And and by the way, uh, just the mentioning of that personal detail, I thought hard about whether or not that was even relevant um, and appropriate to mention. And I think so often women are silenced when it comes to speaking out the personal matters of their lives that make a huge difference uh, to them. And so I want to speak about the reality of what I experienced uh, because it is the truth. Um, and so, so did, what effect did it have? Well, um, it, you know, I, I cannot hide from the fact that. I did follow my husband around for a very long time um, in, and taking on jobs and doing things that were not my first choice. Starting with the fact that we got married and because he got um, into um, Boston University Law School, I had to go to Harvard. Um, it's starting there and, there and I wouldn't have gone to Harvard had it not been for the fact that it was convenient, it was right there, and I could get in. Um, so for a long time, that's, that was my life. And in my very patriarchal um, environment uh, in Texas, um, that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, I was supposed to get married and have children and be a help meet. Um, uh, to uh, to my to my husband because what he did was far more important than anything I would ever do. So yes, I mean I I internal I internalized that, but also in part because I was smarter than he was, and I could in fact <laughs> land on my feet wherever wherever we went, and so sometimes partners do that. Um, uh, the trailing uh, partner sometimes uh, is able. To has the flexibility to find employment uh, because of their particular uh, area of expertise, and so um, so so that's not an unusual decision. But I think it certainly is true that when I made the decision to move to Princeton, I very consciously made that decision because I was interested in being at a top university where I could learn something about how universities function. Um, That was the first decision I made um, after graduate school to go someplace um, on my own. And uh, so, you know, it is is 
what, and it, and it worked out uh, for me um, because Princeton turned out to be uh, an incredible environment for me. I fought them, um, you know, all, all the way, um, but um, they rewarded me in turn um, for fighting with them about all of all of these issues. And I'm now back at Princeton on the Board of Trustees. So they've been very loyal to me as an institution. So that institution meant a lot to me. Um, I had mentors there, um, all white, all Jewish males. You know, the president, the provost, the dean of the faculty, three, three men who decided that one day I should be a president. This is why I say to my students, don't ever think you know what life holds for you or who is going to be good for you, faithful to you, respect you as a human being. You have to be open to all of humanity, all circumstances where you can learn about life and learn about the world. Because if you're open to that, surprising things enter your life. Well, thank you. I'm going. Yes, Dr. Sam. <laughs> thank you, High Commissioner. Um, look, we're out of time. I know there's a lot of questions you still want to ask, but um, we are out of time. And I hope uh, I hope you've got a lot from what we've been able to cover in this hour and a half. <laughs> Hand delivered. No, keep that. Uh, this is our last public event during the research phase of the project. And it feels like a really significant event, actually. And I see Mara eyes nodding, and I'd like to acknowledge Bim Atawunmi, who's also on the advisory group. I hadn't realized you were here, Bim. Good to see you. And I see you tweeting away. So thank you for that. But it feels like this is sort of in the end of a phase that's really... <clears throat> important to us. So I'd like to just take a minute to um, say a couple of things about where we're up to. And I think the major message is a massive thank you to so many people who've made this really exceptional, fabulous project possible. And I, I'm going to start with, with you for chairing tonight. Thank you. Hi, Commissioner, for being with us through the whole journey. The advisory group members who are here have been fabulous to us, kept us going given us advice, pushed us along, and been incredibly supportive. Um, I'm going to thank Darian Jade for being fabulous team members, and Rebecca, is Rebecca here, been involved in, there you are, in helping us get the coding going. <clears throat> but our, our funders have enabled the whole thing to happen. Julia's a senior member of staff here at the LSC. You've been a great support to so, so many things we've done. And I know Connor Geerty, who's not here as head of the IPA, has been a real key to getting this moving and to supporting its initial um, the idea when I first went to him absolutely go for it he said um, and many people along the way have suggested women to whom we should speak and whose testimonies and journeys we should capture and it's through that we've been able to reach such a wide range of women who've made their lives available to us really and more recently we've been asking who it is you think we should be sharing our findings with, who it is that you think could benefit from the lessons that we're learning from the women who've spoken to us, who do you think needs to change the way they do business, really? 
and that's been something we're still open to. So I'm going to point to Daria and Jade again. If you still want to make suggestions, go find them and tell them who we should be talking to. But I think the biggest thanks go to every woman who has given us her story, who shared her life with us, her time, her passion, her experiences. And in particular tonight, of course, the thanks go to Professor Simmons, who's ended this phase of the research in such a powerful and um, inspiring way. I think our work, Professor Simmons, is much richer and wiser for your contribution and your imagination and the vision that you've carried with you through all your work, uh, your commitment to a better world, something I spoke to you about earlier today, that broader agenda that you've taken forward for all, has been a truly fitting point to end this phase of research. So thank you so very much for all of that. Thank you all. Thank you.